0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Tonight, we'll be talking to Christopher Katarine about the topic of leaving academia and his new book, Leaving Academia, A Practical Guide. Welcome to the show, Christopher.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Christina.
1: I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I wonder if we could start off by having you tell us about yourself.
0: I got my PhD in classics in 2014 from the University of Virginia. After that, I ended up teaching as a visiting assistant professor for three years. Uh, My wife had a job at a university, and they had a visiting position open, so I ended up working there. During that time, I became involved in contingent faculty issues, and uh, my wife and I are in the same discipline. So we faced the two-body problem, and uh, over time, for a variety of reasons, I came to see that maybe academia wasn't actually uh, the path that I wanted for myself, even though up until uh, about age 30, I'd been quite committed to that, uh, that future So starting in 2015, I began exploring careers outside of academia and in 2017, uh, I was able to secure a job as a communication strategist and proposal writer for a global consulting firm and I've been working there since August of 2017.
1: And so that leads to the next question, which is why did you decide to write this book?
0: When I was leaving and I looked around at what resources were available. It, it was the, the heyday of Quitlit. and I looked at that and I said, well, this is good and cathartic that people are saying I'm leaving and letting people know, but um, it always kind of bothered me because uh, I didn't really know what to do with Quitlit. It, it told me that I could have feelings and that was fine, but I didn't really know what, what to do with them from there. On the other hand, there were resources available that seemed um, to tell you how to change careers, or you could do this or that. But they seemed uh, almost so so practical without acknowledging that emotion in the way that I, I, I was looking for, that I, I dismissed them out of hand. And so after I made the switch myself, uh, I said, you know, um, hey, this is actually a gap in in the current resources, as I as I saw them. And uh, over lunch with some friends, actually at an academic conference in twenty eighteen, January twenty eighteen, uh, those friends convinced me to maybe maybe start thinking about that and and tr- outline it as a book. And so I ended up doing that um, in early twenty eighteen and and in early twenty nineteen, I shopped it around with some publishers, and um, and here we are.
1: And at some point, there was a blog.
0: Yes. So while I was leaving the <laughs> while I was leaving the academy, I was aware of the fact that I uh, didn't have as much obviously relevant ex- experience as as some uh, employers would have liked, and so I began doing as many different things as I could to build experience. And one of those was a a blog that chronicled my departure from higher education, that also got into contingent faculty issues. And really that was an opportunity for me to do two things. Uh, one was to develop a public writing persona and tone that started shaking off some of those academic ticks, you know, the ways in which um, you can just say how, that's all right. Uh, so kind of getting rid of that stuff, trying to talk more like a, a non-academic, a layman, a, a, a normal person, as it were. Uh, and... Um, yeah, so I ended up having the blog to to in part do that. And, and the other part of it was also that I really wanted to um, say publicly that I was leaving academia so that I couldn't chicken out and try to go back on it. Uh, there was a little bit of psyching myself up to, to do something that I was af- very much afraid of and nervous about. And at a certain point, I knew that, um, in spite of the fear, the best thing for me to do was to to do something I couldn't go back on. And so writing the blog was also a way uh, to force myself forward, even if I didn't want to do it.
1: And so if we can unpack that a bit, when you went to grad school, you thought when you finished, you would be a professor, like there was just a f- sort of blinders on straightforward path. And that's where you were going to go. Is that right?
0: Yeah, when I was a sophomore in college, I remember having a meeting with the dean, and he looked at the courses that I'd selected, and he said, you can't take all of these. They're all in the classics department. And I said, well, I know that's what I want to study. And and he was convincing me that, no, that's, that's – or he tried to convince me that, no, that's not a very good idea. Um, you need to, to diversify your – your courses and so i said well thank you very much and i i changed one or two things to the bare minimum uh, to make it acceptable and then went back to taking as many courses and in, in classics as i could and uh for me that was just what i wanted to do and i wasn't really interested in listening to advice to the contrary even even at age 19. so uh, for me to go from undergrad then into grad school uh, full steam ahead, uh, pursuing a PhD in classics, that that really was the career that, that I wanted. And uh, I would say that really until I was about uh, a year past the PhD, I had never really given any other career second thought. Uh, and it was only when I confronted some of the, the realities of the job market, even, even back then in 2015, that I began to consider other paths.
1: How much uh, did your professors at grad school or symposiums or programs that were offered to graduate students urge you all to think of jobs outside academia or even lay out for you what those might be?
0: They did not. Uh, I mean, that's, the, that's the simple answer. They really didn't. Um, it was a uh, extremely rigorous and uh, conservative program. I gather it's changed a bit since, but um, the the program I was in was really there to train the next generation of classical philologists, people who study how individual words and narratives fit together to convey meaning in literature. And that that was what it was aimed to do. So I... Don't think I had ever considered careers. Uh, I, I didn't know anybody who had talked openly about looking for careers outside of the academy until quite late. There were, were, of course, people who, you know, left after getting a master's and went on to do other things. Somebody who went to law school, for instance. Um, but those people were the exception, and I would say that uh, certainly my attitude when when I saw them. Uh, depart and and do what they did was that they had had failed, and uh, that just meant that I was one step closer to getting a job because there was one less person competing for it. Um, so so really, this was not a way that I'd been conditioned to think, and I I did feel like I had to forge my own path, which probably wasn't as true as I thought it was. There there are a lot of Good resources out there now. There were probably more than I knew about in 2015, but uh, it was it was a radical change. Um, I I I really had been uh, trained not yeah not just I, I'd kind of come up thinking that I would be a professor, but I'd been trained to think that that was the job that I was being pre- prepared to do, and that there was no other job to
1: do. And so you you graduate, and now you and your wife both have PhDs, and you both want to try to get professor jobs. Is that when you became aware of the statistics that you have in the book? It's something like 7% of PhDs are going to get hired as professors. I mean, it's a really small number.
0: Yeah, that number is is pre-COVID, and I think that's the tenure track number, is, is about 7%. Uh, I didn't actually piece that together until a little bit later when I was working on Contingent faculty issues and began to start digging into what the numbers actually looked like. Really, the reason I initially began looking outside is that there was just what we thought was a bad year in my my discipline, where, you know, for some 300, 400 applicants, there were about 50 tender track jobs. And I said, oh, those numbers don't seem great. And uh, the following year, it was fewer, I think it was down to 35. And the year after that, um, in my sub-discipline, there were actually no jobs at all. Uh, and so no tenure track jobs at all, I should say. And so it was really a growing awareness of how hard it was to get one of these jobs. And and also the realization that spousal hires don't actually exist anymore unless you, you're being brought in as an experienced hire for the most part. And uh, that my wife and I kind of had to choose between living together and one of us changing careers or, or living apart and both of us being classicists and, and living apart was not really an option for us.
1: And you include in the book numbers about adjunct work. Um, I think currently it's something like 75% of classes are actually taught by adjuncts, but adjuncts don't make a living wage. And when you and your wife are trying to look at your future goals and your family goals it wasn't possible really for the, the two of you to meet those goals unless you actually had a full-time job with a decent salary. Can you talk about how the tenure, um, I'm sorry, how the adjunct track is really a very difficult one for people if, they're, if, if they need to make an income?
0: The, yeah, the The adjunct life is really hard. And if you are somebody who is independently wealthy, who has a partner who can allow you to teach one or two courses a semester um, or has other interests and do that on the side, it can be an okay way to go. But to to treat adjuncting as full-time work is just nonsense. I think the last average that I saw was that people were getting somewhere between 2,700 and $4,000 per class to teach as an adjunct. And so even if you end up you know, stacking up four of these things uh, each semester, um, if, if you're allowed to do so at your university, you're still not making very much money. You usually don't get benefits. Uh, and certainly if you're spreading those out over multiple universities, you not only won't get benefits, but you also need to deal with the inconvenience of juggling multiple academic calendars simultaneously, email addresses and the like. And uh, really, when I was working on contingent faculty issues, it, there, was, there was a really kind of simple matter of professional identity that became really obvious to, to all of us on the committee. And it was that people's email addresses kept changing, and universities would shut off an email address. And very often, you would have somebody who you were trying to, to stay in touch with, to build a professional relationship with, and, and you couldn't actually do it so. There's there's the the monetary side of things, which is which is real, and and I think primary. But there's also this other side of it, which is that if you're trying to build a professional identity as an adjunct, uh, the cards are, are really stacked against you, and and the systems in place are not going to allow you to do the types of things that you need to do to qualify for a tenure track job, which is going to be largely based on your research output anyway.
1: And one of the other. Um hidden problems that you bring to light in the book is what you call the tenure trap job. Not the tenure track job, but the tenure trap job. Can Can you tell listeners what that is?
0: The tenure trap job is a tenure track position that somebody takes in a geography where they really don't want to be at a school that is really a bad fit for them. Uh, in the case of of my wife's story, which which is by extension my story, that came in the form of a tenure track offer at a small religious liberal arts school in the Midwest uh, that ended up being a, a bad fit for us and, and for her for lots of reasons. But uh, one of the biggest problems with, with a, a school like that is that very often the library is not going to be uh, terribly well-maintained. You may not have access to things that you need to do research. If you're a scientist, you probably won't have the type of lab that you need to sustain serious research. And I think that there are a lot of people who say, well, a tenure-track job is the thing I'm in this to get. And so the moment they get an offer of any tenure-track job at all, they say yes. But if you take a job thinking that you're going to be able to use it as a stepping stone to something else and the position doesn't actually allow you the time or the resources or the mental bandwidth to do the things you need to do to actually make that happen, you could find yourself stuck in one of these positions, you know, earning tenure and, and maybe having a stable life, but not having a happy life. And, uh, when I looked, (laughs) when I looked at the tenure track jobs that were being listed in the years, when I was on the academic job market, uh, one of the other things that I started to realize is that maybe 5% of those jobs were in places that I wanted to be. And and I remember even considering one that was, I think a two and a half hour drive from the nearest major interstate, not airport, but interstate. And I just said, wow, I mean, how, uh, that, that just wasn't some, uh, a way that I wanted to live. I wanted to be able to travel to see family um, being, being that remote was not uh, something I wanted to get stuck in. And so Uh, I'd I'd kind of become aware of the fact that this type of position was there. And then in in writing the book, I I was able to coin this term. And, And I have to say, I was quite happy that nobody beat me to it.
1: So after you and your wife both jumped in to academia and then started to see what you got yourself into, she ultimately turned down that offer. For the tenure track job and decided to stay at a um, academic job she had that was not tenure track but it was a renewable position is that right that's right and you decided you were going to have to leave academia which you you take us through uh in the book and i really appreciate how you really unpack your experience and you you kind of lay it bare for us because we're there with you in your shell shock. You never really thought that was going to be a decision you would have to make. And yet you and your wife start talking about how you can unpack all of these trade-offs that you had just silently accepted during grad school as normal. And yet most jobs never expect you to make those trade-offs. And so you start thinking about things like salary, location, getting to live with your wife, the timing that you can plan on uh, family creation. Will you be near your extended family? What about community building? What about your psychological health? What benefits do you want? What are your personal values? And figuring out your career trajectory, which is a lot when you've spent years being conditioned (laughs) to think that none of those were going to be your choices. Can you talk to us about that and how you, um, you urge in the book that people should keep a journal while they're unpacking these things and figuring out what matters to them?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty in in that of, of not being a good journaler myself, but I know that it's a, um, a habit that can be really good for people and, uh, for me, really, uh, I I tend to process information by talking to people, and my, my wife is very patient uh, and put up with a lot of these conversations about what we were, were going through and then what I was going through. Uh, but but really, I think you know the the event that you refer to is that after she was offered this this tenure track job, um, unexpectedly, she didn't think she was going to going to be offered it at all after uh, how the on campus interview had gone. Um, the school did invite us up to visit, and we went up together. And uh, we really ended up having these long conversations in the in the car, and uh, and then when we got back about about what we actually what we actually wanted, and um, it was sort of jarring to be driving between the nearest city and the small town where the school was, and talking about how we could do really interesting things potentially with classics in the com- our community in new Orleans and ways to tie it back. And, and I looked at her and I said, this is nuts that we're sitting here thinking about a future in this place where we are now, but, but our mind keeps going, keeps going back to the place where, where we live. Uh, that, that really has to mean something. And, uh, from there, we said, okay, well, maybe we want to choose where we live. Maybe we want to stay in New Orleans. Okay, that's um, that's a good thing to know. Uh, it was probably a couple years later when I came around to the idea that having a, a good salary was actually something that mattered a great deal to me. Uh, my my wife and I both came from reasonably privileged backgrounds. Uh, we didn't want for anything. It, wasn't like we could have anything we wanted, but uh, we, we certainly weren't in need. And I did have this realization at one point uh, around the time I was turning 30 that if if we had kids when we had kids, they would never really get um, anything close to the semblance of the life that my wife and I had enjoyed um, if if the two of us stayed in academia. And And there was also a you know, in terms of my leaving and her staying, a practical element as well, which is that her position was renewable and mine was a visiting position that was terminal. And so uh, she could stay and she had that choice. And and for me, you know, what I what I told people when I was leaving is that at the end of three years, whether I have been the best professor they have ever had or I have been uh, completely horrible and, and worthless, uh, that university is going to let me go. It makes absolutely no difference. It's just a, a timed contract. And um, when I tried to explain that to people in, in business, they didn't get it because it's absolutely insane. And realizing that um, actually there are professions where, uh, yeah, sometimes you might run into a, a timed terminal contract, but more often than not, you're expected to stick around as, as long as you want to or as long as they need you. Uh, that was also uh, eye-opening to me. And I realized maybe that was a better way, better way to live and work.
1: And one of the things you point out in the book, which I really appreciated, is you said billions of people support themselves by working outside mm-hmm. academia. I wondered if that was something you had to remind yourself of as you were trying to figure out, well, what do I do now, though? The
0: world that you live in in academia is is so small, and, it, and yet it feels so big. And classics especially, you know, it's probably, by the time you factor in all the professors and you know, uh, secondary school teachers and and grad students and all of that. Maybe you've got a conference an archaeologist too. You've got maybe a conference of 5,000 people. I mean, that's just, that's just nothing. It's so small. And I, I did start to realize that, you know, my, my dad has been a financial consultant for most of my life. My mom has been a CPA my entire life. I have friends who'd gone into consulting friends who'd gone into law. My sister is in marketing and I started to realize I had absolutely no idea what these people actually did day to day, even though they were the closest people to me. And I think when I realized that I didn't actually know what my mom did, that was one of those moments for me where I said, oh, wow, I've, I've been missing something really obvious here. I thought that I was um, committing to a career because I, I knew it and understood it and knew how it was better than the alternatives. But in fact, um, I, I kind of just made a bunch of assumptions about what was a good job and what was a bad job when I was in my 20s and I didn't actually know anything about those jobs and, um, and I just kind of committed to, to doing something uh, that was that was eye opening and so I, I did begin. A a process slowly at first and then and then much faster, of conducting informational interviews where you ask for a meeting with somebody just to inquire about what they do and how they got there, uh, and if you <laughs> make uh, you know strike uh, hit it off with them to go on to ask them where they think they might be going in the future. Uh, really, just as a way to learn about what you might be able to do and if you might be interested in doing something adjacent to what they do, and uh, that for me became a really um, Exciting and, and engaging, interesting way to start learning about about what those billions of other people actually do. Uh, but it came from a, a recognition and an admission of, um, I think, simultaneously my ignorance about what those jobs actually were, and also uh, really my arrogance in assuming that I that I did know, uh, and and in assuming that the path that I'd chosen for. Um, Uh, kind of silly reasons around age 20 were were actually valid.
1: And one of the other things you did was you reached out to other people who had also left academia to find out what had happened to them. Are you able to share a couple of, of those stories?
0: Oh, I have a lot of them at this point. <laughs> I've spoken with a good number of people. Uh, I, you know, I think some of the ones that I share in the book, There, were, there was one guy who had written a piece, his name's Mike Zim, and he'd written a piece in the Chronicle for Higher Ed about how he got a PhD in ancient history at Yale and then went on to work at a marketing firm in New Haven. And uh, I saw this. I said, well, this is a crazy story, and, and I'm trying to do this. I should really talk to this guy. So um, I sent him an email, even though I'd never, never met him before. And probably within um, yeah, within uh, two days, we'd, we'd scheduled a 30-minute phone call. And um, he ended up putting me in touch with about seven other former academics. But he just told me about, about his path. And, and Mike is a, a guy of of. I'd say unique charisma and uh, he had the good fortune of being in a a mid-sized market with some uh, companies that were punching above their weight. And so he just started walking into businesses in New Haven and asking to talk to the CEO. And if they said no, he would walk out. And if they said yes, uh, he'd make a 15 minute pitch. And and eventually he was able to convince somebody uh, that even if he didn't know how having an ancient historian on staff was probably a good idea. Um, Again, Mike's, Mike's unusual. Uh, but he was he was able to to do this. Um, you know, the more normal path, I think, is that people end up uh, conducting informational interviews, feeling out what types of jobs they might want to do and and that practice of informational interviews morphs into networking over time. And at a certain point, you do start building relationships with people who um, uh, understand, kind of what your strengths are in ways that you might not understand what your potential in a different environment might be in ways that you don't. Uh, and they will eventually start connecting you to to potential opportunities uh, as they as they arise. And so um you know I'm thinking about about other other academics that that have gone on to other things. And, and I can think of a number in consulting, which is the the field that I'm in. And I think almost everybody that I know in consulting ended up getting their job because they just spoke with somebody who was already in it and they had a good conversation they seemed to uh be a good personality fit and at the right moment in their their life and career and career change and um that led to more conversations uh with people who who didn't have an academic background but but it went well so um, yeah, that's that's sort of two two versions of of how you leave. One is one is you just have uh, a great deal of charisma and can can talk a good game and, and convince somebody uh, that you're worth their time, uh, and then prove it. And the other one is that you do this kind of slower, more disciplined uh, habit of of informational interviews and networking, and use that to uh, create opportunities. And one of the studies that I mentioned in the book came out from LinkedIn. Uh, so, you know, take take this with a grain of salt, but at least their, their number was that 87% of mid-career hires are um, brought in by referral rather than by application. And I think most people who have a PhD will be viewed as a mid-career hire. And so that means that the, the likeliest path to getting a job is actually by meeting people rather than just submitting applications into the void. And one of this
1: other things you did was you you reached out to some former mentors to to talk it through with them. Someone um, that you reached out to, he was actually um, an administrator kind of high up in, in academia. Can you tell us about that?
0: Uh, you must be referring to Dan Porterfield.
1: And,
0: yeah. Yeah, Dan was somebody that I knew while I was an undergrad at Georgetown. At that point, he was a vice president. And uh, he's he's a really... Uh, charismatic guy. I, I'm probably overusing that word at this point, but but uh, Dan really is, and he has a really keen eye for um, how to build community and how to uh, build up people to create something bigger than than individuals. And um, you know, I. I I didn't know Dan well when I was an undergrad, but I knew that he was an English PhD, that he had this administrative job, that he seemed really happy, and that he was doing stuff that I admired. And so when I first had this um, fear that maybe I wasn't going to be one of those lucky people to get an, an academic job, a tender track job. Dan was actually the first person that I messaged, and um, I did it out of out of desperation because I didn't really know where else to turn. He was the only person who had done something different with a PhD that I actually knew, and you know when I when I sent him a Facebook message in I think it was the spring of, of 2015 um, or 2016. It, you know at that point he was president of Franklin and Marshall College, and so I really did not. Did not expect a response, but because Dan is the kind of person who is is good at um, cultivating people and at building communities, he he made thirty minutes for me, and um, you know the, that conversation, which I recount in the book, uh, was valuable in a lot of ways. But one of them was was that it showed me that asking for help is okay, and getting advice is um, can be intimidating, but people are are often happy to to do it. And also for somebody who was a visiting assistant professor to f- realize that I just had a 30-minute phone call with the university president, I felt like a million bucks. And that boost of confidence um, you know, coupled with his advice of, of practical ways to move past the um, crippling dread that I was feeling in that moment um, really did help me, help me move forward. And, and it wasn't instant, it took time, uh, but, but it did kind of set me down that path so, so for me, uh, you know, with Dan, that was that was sort of the lesson: is that is that um, ask people for help, even if you think you might be wasting their time or bothering them, even if you think that uh, they're too important for you to spend their time on. There is really no harm in asking. Uh, the worst that happens is is they say say no or don't reply, and if they actually say yes, you've you've put yourself in a position to. Uh, To get a lot of very good advice quickly. And uh, if you're changing careers, that's something that you need a lot of.
1: One of the things I I like about the book is you let us know that we don't have to completely cold turkey leave everything about academia. And part of the proof of that is that your book is published by an academic press. (laughs) Um, We're not all going to do that, but uh, you you also have other ways that people can stay connected to the the, the academic things that they're passionate about. Can you talk a bit about, about that and how you've done it?
0: I've seen people do lots of different things. There are some who maintain a research profile, and they manage to get a courtesy appointment to a, a library at a local university uh, so they can can get access to materials there. And they, they keep working on what they did before in their spare time. Uh, it doesn't happen at, at quite the same speed as it did before, but they can stay engaged and involved. Uh, I've you know, met people who ended up getting into um, blogging or podcasting as a way to maintain a presence in that space but with a focus more on translating academic materials for popular audiences that can be one way that people do it and I think every former academic I know with the exception of one it ha- has put an awful lot of time into coaching other people from their discipline who are leaving uh, it's it's not an easy thing to do I think um, I, I don't know anybody who's had uh, you know a, a A breeze trying to exit and most of us are eager to make time to to help people help people out um by talking to them and advising them as they do what what we did and um and our perspective on that changes too as we move on in our careers and do different things so so those are sort of three three options for how you can engage there are are many more besides that i think but those are um Sort of an an extreme staying in of research, a, a medium of doing uh, sort of translation for a public audience, uh, and a light of of really just advising people who left. And and for me, uh, it really I, I did fall into that last category. I think most of the work that I've done has has focused on advising other people. Although I have also had opportunities to present to. Um, the chairs of PhD granting institutions in in classics to talk about ways that they might, um, if not reimagine grad, grad education, at least start um, broadening some of the the outcomes for people with a PhD by by thinking a little bit more creatively about how programs are structured, um, whether you need to actually have a seminar paper at the end of every, every course, things like that. So um, I suppose my, my connection has been more on the advocacy side.
1: And you give a lot of practical advice in the book to people who are now going to be in the workforce outside academia about the etiquette, um, about How to handle yourself. And some of the tips that you gave um, may at this point seem obvious to you, but they were surprising to me. One is, you know, don't tell people you have a PhD. That won't sit the same way with people outside academia as it will inside academia. And you also tell people to ask more questions than they answer. And I sat with that one for a minute, I was like, oh, right, that is the opposite of what we've been trained to do. we're, we've been trained, you know, when we've been asked a question, we need to not only answer we need to answer it thoroughly. Um, and so, you you know, you let us know, Mm-mm, no, it's a, it's a new culture. You're going to be asking questions, uh, and you urge us to have economy of speech. Can you take us through some of those tips and explain why in this new world these are really important things so that we don't misstep?
0: The biggest one is that... <laughs> You, outside of the academy, you don't know how somebody is going to view people with a PhD and and how they are going to view somebody with an academic background. I think we all know that there are um, certain uh, people of certain political persuasions who view academia with suspicion. You may encounter some of these people, and if you tell them that you you know were a professor for a time or a grad student for a time, uh, they may – dismiss you out of hand. And because you don't know that, it can be helpful to, um, to keep that background a little bit quiet. Uh, on the other hand, I spoke with somebody who, and, and I recount this in the book, uh, who works at an um, a, a executive branch department for the U.S. government. And uh, because of how it was founded historically, and because it's relatively recent, some of the people in leadership positions only have a high school diploma. And so all of a sudden, if you start talking about your PhD in front of people who didn't go to college, you could look like you're trying to um, tell them you know better. And that might not be interpreted the right way either. And that's that's not a political determination. It's, it's um, just a background determination. And um, so you need to be careful of that. And you need to understand what that culture is. And I think that really gets to the heart of it, is that until you really know what your new work environment values what that culture is. How people how people think and talk and communicate. The safest thing to do uh, is not to assume that they will value you, but to assume that they won't, uh, and to be quiet. And uh, and to ask questions so that you can gain that information as quickly as possible, and there may eventually come times where you realize talking about that background could be beneficial. You could turn it into an advantage, and when you see that, you absolutely should. But you want to make sure you know what you're what you're doing first. Um, I think the second part of your question was was really about economy of speech, and and this is less about um, not putting your your foot in your mouth as as it is that people in other sectors are tend to be managing many, many more things at once than academics do. And I know that all academics will say they are are busy, and especially uh, here we are in, in November at the end of uh, probably the most challenging semester anybody has had. Uh, things, things are busy and they feel busy. Uh, but the number of tasks that you have is is dwarfed by people in uh, executive positions and leadership positions in, in business. They have lots of teams working for them doing different things, and they're trying to keep it all straight. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in consulting, I'm in one of these environments where there's um, a fairly aggressive um, uh, uh, brevity of speech, and that's because people just can't be bothered with non-essential information. And uh, one of the risks that you have in an environment like that, if you give a full and long-winded answer, is that people will miss the most important information. And uh, the best thing that you can do to help people make the decisions that they need to make is to figure out what they need to know and give them that information first. And if they ask for follow-up or more clarification, be ready with the additional details. It's not like you can't know them, uh, but you need to always be thinking uh, not only about your understanding of things, but also about the understanding of that that topic that other people need to have to do their job uh, and and control the, the flow of information in a way that, that um, helps them succeed. Because that's something that uh, you don't really need to do in academia. And so it requires a good deal more thought, I think, when you end up in a, in a situation where you are working um, with people and for people.
1: And one of the other things uh, you you mentioned is that most academics are introverts and I, I completely am an introvert uh, by nature. And academia encourages us into that role even more rather than expanding us out of it. And yet when you leave academia, being an introvert is not so much of an attribute. So one of the things that you talk about is the importance of making time for a small talk. Can you talk about that, please?
0: I assumed that when my company hired me at, at the salary they were willing to pay me to to do the types of uh, strategic communications and writing that they were asking me to do, that they simply couldn't afford that unless every single minute was spent being productive, and I think yeah, you know, I spoke a little bit earlier about some of the arrogance that I had and ignorance that I had when I began exploring new jobs, and this is a good a good example of it. Um, I assumed business people must just want to get down to business, and uh, there are times where that is true when you are under under deadline, but so many. Business is, at its heart, a collective endeavor to do something and and to profit from it. And because it's a collective endeavor, it means that you need people cooperating and and working together. And sometimes people um, who don't necessarily get along need to work together. And uh, even if they do get along, working together um, kind of can, can... Present its own challenges. You can be distracted by by joking around things like that, and uh, you know, for me, what I realized is that is that this personal connection that you have with the people on your team, with with your bosses, with everybody, is is actually essential because uh, there are moments in any job where you're on a team where things. Go sideways. Either um, somebody blows a deadline and the client is upset, or um, new information comes out and and uh, fundamentally changes or, or uh, contradicts your assumptions and requires a whole bunch of rework. And you get stuck um, dealing with people who are frustrated, working late and tired. I think during COVID we all know that people are distracted with with uh, families and and pets and kids at home, uh, worry about about the disease itself about um, about politics and elections and all that, um, people are almost never functioning at their best. And when people aren't functioning at their best, the worst thing that can happen is to uh, stop assuming good intent in other people. Because when that happens, work stops. And when work stops, uh, that's it, the game, the game is over. And so um, actually taking time to talk to people about, um, you know, what they do over the weekend, uh, whether they have, have families or, or kids, um, how they like to spend their time. These human points of contact can be really valuable because when, th- when things get bad, and they will always get bad in, in a job at some point, um, those become things that you can fall back on that help you maintain that trust and that assumption of good intent, even when you're tired and haven't eaten and are cranky and hangry, uh, and, and everybody else is too. And that is is very often the thing that kind of keeps you moving and gets you past whatever that rocky situation is. So you can still do what you need to do. Um, and, and I mean, I have uh, a, a mentor at work and uh, back when we could travel and, and I used to travel most weeks for work. He said, I always keep a bar of extremely good chocolate in my briefcase. He said, because if we end up being here past nine or 10 at night, nobody's gonna be happy. And sometimes pulling out that good bar of chocolate is exactly what you need to, to smooth things over and let people get out by 11. And, um, and, and I saw that bear itself out a lot of times.
1: One of the things I noticed in the book is some of the tips that you gave us um, make me realize that some of the things that we learned in academia would be considered sort of toxic if we use them in a different environment. And one of the pieces of advice you gave was don't deconstruct bad ideas. And while in academia, that's an important thing to do in the work environment, it's the opposite. Um, Your advice instead was to be kind and to be constructive. Can you talk about in the few minutes we have left some of those, um, maybe things from academia that we don't want to take with us, because in the new environment, it would be toxic and what we might want to use as a replacement behavior.
0: Yeah, the the reflex the reflex to deconstruct is is one that I don't know that it needs to be jettisoned. It can be helpful, but it needs to be qualified. And and if you are going to say why something doesn't work, you need to be prepared to say um why that is a problem for the business issue or, or you know, nonprofit issue at hand, uh, and also what you think should work better. Because if you're just saying why things won't work, uh, that's not helping the team. All it's doing is um, shooting things down and not letting work proceed. Uh, if, at the same time, if you come at that with a, a you know constructive criticism and say, hey, Uh, I don't think this is going to work for X, Y, and Z reasons, but if we take that one core idea that you had and and maybe turn it in this direction or add in X, Y, or Z, um, and I think we can get to someplace good, uh, that can – that can help things along, and 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 again, the goal is to keep things moving forward, so you don't just get to to a standstill. But also, you don't want to be perceived as just cutting down somebody's argument for the or, or idea for the sake of it. Uh, for the same reason that that you know, building rapport is good. You need to work with these people, and if they decide that you don't like them, uh, they will treat you in kind, and that that isn't going to be terribly good for you, for you either. Um, and Christine, you had a second part of that question. Can you repeat it for me?
1: Oh, I think you answered it. It, it was really about uh, a replacement behavior for things that we learn to do so thoroughly in academia. But if we take them outside academia, we will offend people. <laughs> it's oh, it's it was not, a, not, not,
0: yeah. You asked me for two examples <laughs> rather than one. And I think the other one really is being concise. And um, the the best, best example of this is that um, you shouldn't give the most important piece of information as the last line in an email, it should always be the first. And I think in academia we are trained to um, demonstrate that we understand the, the scholarship all of the things that have done been done before and then to explain why they haven't worked. And only then, you know, then and only then are you justified in promoting your idea and saying this, this is what I think is a better idea and here's why. And, um, that is how academics are trained to communicate. And you simply don't need to do that in a business setting. Most people don't care about, um, all of the detailed deliberation that went into, uh, whatever determination you've made, they just need to know what it is and uh, you need to lead with that information. And then if you do feel compelled to provide some kind of uh, supporting uh, justification, you should stick to only the most critical things that that kind of uh, justify it and then stop. And if people want more information, they can ask. Again, you need to have that at the ready, but um, you need to give them that information in the the order and in the size uh, that they that they're expecting it.
1: That is really helpful. Thank you. Um, What do you hope this conversation tonight sparks for listeners as they think about leaving academia?
0: If somebody is at that first stage where they have that inkling of doubt that things are going to work out, or uh, they're they're realizing that maybe there aren't going to be jobs, especially with, with COVID, um, I talk about this as as dread in my book, and I think almost every a- true believer in the academic mission goes through it. And, and I would hope that this conversation would give you uh, at least some hope that uh, even if you are still feeling that dread when, when this uh, recording stops, that you at least know about a, a resource or some resources that can help you start to think about moving past it and that you are um, aware of the fact that that is a, a temporary feeling that that you will move past and that will um, will and can and will open the way to, to new and better things. And um, I suppose I would end by saying that I could not have imagined being happy in a job outside of academia while I was in, inside of it. Uh, and now I, I can't believe how miserable I allowed myself to be during the whole time I was there. I'm, I'm much happier now, and um, I, I can't actually dream of going back.
1: Thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you for ending on that note. I think it's really encouraging for listeners. And the book we have been talking about is called Leaving Academia, a Practical Guide. Christopher Katerine, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. Please join us again.